Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Glory to God. Yeah. I need to Hopefully, uh, did you say Nick was going to to Branson? Yeah. Okay. Kylie and Brock will be there. Brock will be part of the uh, the worship. So we'll have live worship there, which some of us it's been a very long time, and some of us maybe have never encountered worship like this before, right? And so it'll be good. It'll be just a time to go get lost with God in our own. You know, thoughts with the Lord. It's always nice to go give. It's this interesting kind of dynamic that if you, you have the right kind of worship going on in the background, you can actually get quiet with the Lord. It sounds antithetical to think you can get quiet with the Lord when there's something going on in the background. But it's this interesting heart kind of thing that can happen where the people are filled with the Spirit and they're up there playing instruments. You can get lost, right, in, in silence and stillness with God, right? And Probably everybody in here has experienced this already, but when the the noise of life fades to the background, man, the voice of God can become distinctly clear, That's right. right? And it's it's amazing the things you can hear and the intimacy that you can experience when all the noise in your head is kind of like the spell, right, Cindy? That's probably when you're painting, you're probably experiencing part of that. Yeah, I was just thinking about the words, the last line, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Yeah. Which is exactly what you were saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean we can't experience God in every waking moment. We can, right? right? Like we can experience God driving down the road with all the noise all around us. So it's not like we're not establishing some law where this is the only way you can hear God, but we also don't need to tear down the fact that it is nice to go and sit with God like that, right? And just get lost with him um, in the spirit. Glory to God. So what do y'all want to talk about? Greg, let me mention one thing to, to you. Uh, last last uh, Sunday's Bible study and sermon, and I could be wrong on you, maybe have a bunch, a bunch of better days, the crowning jewel mm -hmm. preached. I thought, so. I, I thought so. Mm -hmm. I, I, I thought I, I so thought it was, too. It was two of the best ever. I, I did back to back, like mm -hmm. powerful. Well, I've been slipping, you know. So <laughs> I've fallen from grace the last year. Or no, so. no, no. <laughs> really. I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. So let me let me build on that. I was wondering as I was coming in this morning if anybody found the opportunity to kind of put into practice what we talked about. Sunday night, you know, I don't mean it works kind of thing, but to find themselves in a place where they potentially could have been offended or where forgiveness was, you know, an opportunity there, and then recall what was discussed on Sunday. If anybody wanted to share anything like that. I was out to dinner Friday night and a friend was saying how Jesus was offended, but he never got mad, you know, never took it out on people. And I said, Do you even know what offended means? <laughs> I said it means to stumble at the truth. So you're saying Jesus stumbled at the truth but didn't act on it? You, you, you think he was offended when people would nail the, the nails in his? No, he knew what was in him and he knew what they were suffering under. And, he, and then he said, didn't that God, Father, forsook Jesus on the cross? I said, well, if you believe that, you should be afraid he's going to forsake you. Too. Yeah, right. So, I think we ought to have a, uh, like a dictionary of biblically 
Yeah, correctly no, defined terms. A long time ago, we, it's about five or six pages long. At Somebody least. just kick us and we'll finish it. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a, it's it helps a, to know the meaning of the term. It does. Yes. Right. As opposed to the hijack meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah no, we yeah. started that. <laughs> we've been. We've been uh, I was offended by his offense. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was thinking about how how the human heart is always looking to reconcile when somebody does something offensive. You know, because it's like, you're like, why did they do that? Because you instinctively know that it's not right. And you instinctively want to forgive. So you're looking at some way to separate that person from the thing that they did. You know, it's like, was watching this TV show and, and this this old guy he was he said some really derogatory things toward this guy and about a, a few minutes later he said the same thing to him and this guy he I mean he's torqued off about it and he's sitting there thinking this is my uncle how can what he he couldn't you know it just it just made him mad right but yet he's looking well, why is he being this way well later on couple of days later he got a report that there was something going on medically with the guy that would cause him to do that and instantly that gave him the ability to excuse the behavior right all right so here we are I mean, it's just the way all of our hearts operate and so with the power of a sound mind and truth to see even when somebody comes at you and does something that seems very intentional <laughs> You can reconcile that with the truth because you understand that they they're doing it out of ignorance. Yeah, right. and that that can that can just be a step to helping people that maybe are still growing in the Lord. To to your point, why do we want to reconcile? Like, why do we even start thinking about it? Right, because it's like no one taught us that. Right. No one taught us to think about it. No one taught us to twist on it. Why do we even go there? Right. And I, I think most people don't even consider that. And then they end up at a loss for what's going on. They end up at a loss for what they need. They end up at a loss for what will heal. The reason why we want to reconcile it is because we can never sit in the place where we have peace if we think that there's something lacking or amiss with our lives. And the moment we think there's something that's come to our house that is not consistent with life. The reason why we want to reconcile it is we want to get back to the place where we think our life is okay. Our life is good, right? And if we can't ever get to the place where we're persuaded that our life is still good or that our life is good in the midst of what's happened, that's when unforgiveness will be born in our heart. That's when we impute what they've done to them and we impute what they've done to us. Or rather, we think what they've done to us has been imputed to our life, right? Like what they've done to us has now attached itself to our life. Like our life is one with what they've done to us. What they've done to us is now a word about our life and what kind of a life that we have. What they've done to us becomes a sign to us about our life and if our life is as it ought to be. Well, you can never just sit in a place where you think your life isn't as it ought to be. The moment you find yourself there, you're going to try to reconcile that. Sure. You're going to try to bring it back to where it is as it ought to be. 
right? And the problem with that is, is that we can't do that on our own, right? Because the, the, the tools we have been given come from the world. And so then we try to reconcile our lives back to the place where it is as it ought to be through worldly things, right? But the moment we can start to understand what it is that's going on in us and that we're desiring life, and that's what we want. We want our lives to be as it's supposed to be. And when someone does something wrong to us, it's warring against our hearts, trying to tell us your life isn't as it ought to be. You're coming behind in something you need to have a good life, something you need to have a good report, something you need to have acceptance, to have justification, to have approval, to all those kinds of things. Well, you come to the place where you realize you have all that in God. And then that will even reconcile it apart from even seeing are really needing to know what's going on in them, right? Because what's going on in them becomes secondary once you find your life from God and you're connecting with God in that place because he reconciles everything, right, inside of you because you receive the ministration that comes from his life. And he starts ministering to you that your life is as it ought to be, that your life is hid with him, right? That the thing that serves you with life is in him, right? The, the thing that can serve you with acceptance is in him. The thing that can, that can serve you with approval is in him. The thing that can serve you with a life that justifies is in him. And so the moment you feel that something is telling you you're coming behind, you get drawn up with him and then you become reconciled. Right? So you're already reconciled, and then at that point, it pops open your eyes and your ears to be able to be, able to be intimately acquainted with what's in them. And I, I don't want to say ironically, but the thing is, is that you were just experiencing what was going on in them. You were just feeling like your nakedness was yep, uncovered. Sure. You were just feeling like they were nailing you yes. to a cross. You were just feeling like you needed to be clothed upon. You were just being filled with that. But you weren't in unbelief because the Father was lifted up in your sight. You saw the Father and the life that's in the Father right there with you. And you saw everything you thought or that you needed or everything that this situation was telling you you didn't have. You saw all of it in the Father. And now you have it all. And then you can look at them and you can say, ah, that's what's going on in them. Yep. That's why this is coming out of them, right? And the benefit of that is, is then you could come and declare to them about the Father, right? You could, and that's what Jesus did yep. on the cross. He felt the same thing that they had all felt. Right? But he saw everything that he needed for life, the life that could give him everything he needed. He saw it was in the Father. And so in seeing that, he declared the Father in the midst of a people who were dwelling in unbelief, who had also been nailed to a, a, a tree by the world, who had also had their nakedness uncovered. He was able to declare the Father to these people. Yep. So they could then begin to see the Father with them. Yeah. Right? And they right. could then begin to find their lives reconciled. Right? Or what had happened in the earth, reconciled. Or what's been done to them, reconciled in their own hearts. Yeah. Right? So in that, the beam was removed from his eye so he could see clearly how to remove the splinter from his brother. That's exactly right. Yeah. If we go back 12 seconds to, to what you were saying. As far as that was 13. Sixteen thirty-three. This is Christ. I have told you this so that you will have peace by not by your analytics. You will have peace by being united to me. Yeah. Next sentence. The world will make you suffer. Sister, can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> I have told you this so that you will have peace by being united to me. Yeah. And in the Greek, that word peace actually means to be joined together as one yeah. with someone. <laughs> Right. Mm. That's one of the meanings of that word peace. Right. We just think of, well, 
there's no more war, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting when you uh, when you find yourself like connected with someone, like re relating to them and, and understanding and feeling the things that they're feeling and experiencing the the things that they're experiencing. That that connection actually can take place. That relationship. That's why, you know, just uh, you know, hearing the gospel, the words of the gospel, or some message that's meant to convert someone, is not always uh, if, if effective enough to cause someone to believe. In other words, people want to know that there's a God out there who connects with them, who relates to them, who's experienced what they, they have experienced themselves, that that when they see that God, they'll believe on him because, because they know that he cares, he knows, you know. Yeah. How could he deliver them if he's not intimately acquainted with what harms them? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't even know what I need. How can you give me what I need? Right? If you don't even know what's going on in me, it's symptomatic why people don't want to hear advice from someone they don't think has walked in the mm -hmm. same shoes that they've walked in. Yeah. Right? Even if you have good advice, if they don't think you know, they don't really want to hear from you. Right. Yeah. And they don't care. I mean, our brother Jim Dixon tells a story of being off in Bible college and they take you down for your traditional field trip to go and uh, minister to all the bad people in New Orleans. I don't know if you guys know, but New Orleans has the worst people on the whole planet. <laughs> and so when you take your seminary students out for a field trip to teach them how to evangelize, where do you take them? You take them to Bourbon Street because those are the worst, most vile people you can find anywhere on the planet. For those of you that don't know, I'm joking. That's watching the video because you're not from here. I'm joking. That's what the seminary does. But Jim recounts this, this thing where he just felt like something wasn't right about what they were doing. Like it wasn't born from God, but you, it seems funny because it's good to tell people about God. So that's what we're going off to do. And he goes and finds a, a, a drunkard on the street that's homeless. And he starts trying to tell that guy about the Lord. And that guy starts cussing at him and says, come and live with me for a week. And then tell me about God. Right? The guy didn't want to hear nothing about what he had to say about his life or anything. Till he, he partook with him in what he had lived through. Right? But, you know, again, I, I think... One of the things I try to do, and I know some people try to follow me intellectually, and I won't forsake what I'm doing just because people are miss are hearing amiss. And so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But our traditions have lulled us into the place, as evidenced by Thomas's conversation with his friend. Our traditions have lulled us into the place where God's all the time talking with us, and yet sometimes we struggle to hear the voice. Right? And so we struggle to even have these conversations with God. Right? And so one of the things I try to do is help people pop open their ears to where they can start to hear God talking with them in the midst of these things happening to you. Because I promise you, if you start to hear God talking with you in the midst of people transgressing you or committing trespasses against you, you'll get caught up with God. And you'll find reconciliation happening in your heart. You're not trying to reconcile with the person that transgressed you, what you're needing is reconciliation with life. Because the trespass is trying to convince you that there's some schism now in your connection with life. Yeah. 
And what you're in need of is you being reconciled to the fact that you have all things that are needed to experience life and godliness. That what this person has done cannot get in the way of me partaking of life. And then you get reconciled. And then what happens is in your heart, you don't feel a distance or a separation with the person anymore because you don't feel separated from life anymore. But, but one of the things I think we struggle to do is even like consider these things with God. Like, why do we even feel hurt, right? And, and one of the things I want to do is lead people into this place where they don't try to apply what I said, or they don't look at everything that I said and said, I got to make that work in my life, but where they, they, they start stopping in the midst of feeling hurt and start talking with God, right? And start considering, why do I feel hurt? What is it that I think I could gain from them, right? What is it do I think I lost? because of what they did. And they start hearing God talk to them like that. What is it you think you could lose, Greg? Is it okay, right, that, 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 that they said and did this? And for me, the first thing was no, it's not okay. And see, that's the biggest problem. Most of us don't even get there, right? We don't even consider why it's not okay. And so if we don't even know why we don't think it's okay what they did, how can we actually be healed? And so I remember God clearly, is it okay? That they did that? No! Right? And God was trying to pull out of me why I thought it wasn't okay. Because I didn't even know why I thought it wasn't okay. I just knew it's not right. Right? But then immediately out of me starts coming all these thoughts about how this can steal from my life. How this can keep the good thing from happening. Like with preaching. I used to get so upset when people would say things that weren't true. And I don't just mean like a grief. Seeing the people are like sheep without a shepherd. Right? And, and you feel a passion for the truth. I mean, like, angry and offended. And that's the last time I had this conversation with God. Is it okay, Greg, if they said, no! Why not, Greg? Because they're getting... Do you really think what they're doing can keep me from doing what I'm doing? Do you really think that can keep me from bringing forth my life in the earth and in people? And then I realized immediately that's why it was so offensive to me. Because I thought it could keep life from being worked. Right. And I realized I thought that it was separating me from some good thing I needed to have life. Right. And, and so one of the reasons why I talk about all these things is so people can start having these conversations with God and they can start realizing why it's not OK what happened, why it's not OK what people said and did. And they can start realizing because they think it stole something from them. Well, can't you come to the conclusion that it's not OK and at the same time not be offended? I mean, depends on how you want to define it's say, not okay well yeah exactly someone murders my child you okay with that no i'm not okay with that and i'll never be okay with that but at the same time i believe god's grace can insulate my heart so that i don't stumble over the truth that i have everything that i need for life and godliness well what i would but it's say it's not okay that they kill my what child. i would say is it's not born from life it's not okay for me means that i'm not okay I'm not okay. Means my life Thank you can for be clarifying so, that. So yeah. you're not saying that the act or the comment is okay. Obviously, the act you're isn't saying. born from life, right. right? Otherwise, it wouldn't upset you at all, right? So of course, it isn't born from life, right? But the is it okay? Is that I'm concluding now that I'm not okay. I can't be okay. I won't be okay. This has gotten it right to steal something yes. from me. This has gotten it right to take away a stature of my life. All those different kinds of things. Well, right? even something born of life can offend a man. I mean, the Pharisees were offended by Jesus. 
So, but they were offended because they thought he was stealing life from them. I know, but what he did was and telling him what he said did. Everything, everything, did, everything did and said was born of life, and yet they were still offended. But it doesn't matter if something's born from life. It matters if the perception is that it's stealing life from <coughs> or from life, right? If that's the perception, then you're going to feel like you're not okay, right? right. They were literally stumbling at the truth. Right? My life is not yeah, okay. Which, which one, of the, one of the lines in the Bible that really is fascinating to me is where Pilate says to Jesus' face, what, what is truth? What is truth? Mm-hmm. Like so truth. Violent, right? Yeah. Right in front of What is truth? Yeah. Let me throw this out there just for conversation. Would not your ability uh, or the amount of love you have play an absolute major role in there? If you let's take a, an adversarial relationship, uh, a great philosopher, New Orleans philosopher, since you great in New Orleans. I want to enhance our reputation. Uh, Ernie Cato, mother-in-law, the worst person I know. Normally, at least in my case, the mother and the child see things completely different than the mother and the in-law. There's always, at least Russell, there's always a schism. And the reason is because I saw a difference. I love my mom. So her little, you know, little things, they didn't offend me at all. Well, you loved your mom more than yourself. Well, I'm saying that's what I'm saying. Love really overcomes all of that. Yeah. And then, of course, you got a conundrum there because I'm going to keep going with the New Orleans deal. Uh, uh, Clarence Ford Man Henry, great theologian, said, you always hoit the one you love. So you have a little bit of, you can do the opposite because you love them so much they can hurt you more. But just in general, like if you're dealing, if you're dealing with a will, if you're dealing with a family member, say an animal, it's a lot easier, it's a lot easier to understand why something was done because you love that person and you, you understand it completely right. even though it might be some faults and you understand it you know but you don't have you don't you're not you're not agitating the person you're not what you do on that you don't have any the only read first of all the, just throwing that out for the me. last the last comment you made i can't remember the guy's name but i mean <coughs> That's worldly wisdom, right? What, you always hurt the one you love? Yeah, because God didn't hurt us, oh, and he loves God. us. And neither did Jesus hurt us, and he loves us. Yeah. So th- that kind of premise is born from observing things outwardly and then trying to judge from the outward in instead of the inward out. <clears throat> so, for example, I'm a fallible man, right? There's times where in my life I was so overwhelmed by what was happening to me, I become self-focused on my own life. Inevitably speaking, anyone around me, which is going to be the people you love, they're the ones that are going to be around you. Inevitably speaking, they would suffer at the hands of me being self-focused on my own life, right? They would suffer at the hands of me being fearful from that I didn't have what I needed. And then I went about to try to gather what I needed. And then they could suffer at the hands of that, right? 
so that's how that dynamic would work out. But the, the love you're describing only can come out of somebody from the perspective of them not being consumed or thinking of their own life. Yeah, I agree. Right? It can yeah, only happen uh, yeah. if you're preferring the other person's life over your own. Right? And we might get that right in one situation or in another situation, but we're never going to get that right in life outside of receiving eternal life, which is where the love of God is found in the fact that he has a life. Why was Jesus loving people that were crucifying him? It's because he had a life that would overcome the cross. So he was set free to think about their life instead of thinking of his own life, yeah. right? So if you're not set free from thinking of your own life, you can't actually have love coming out of you. But like with your mom, right? You would prefer your mom's life over your own, right? Yeah. And so it, it doesn't matter what she might do. You're still going to find yourself loving her because you're concerned with her life over your own. Yeah. But if it ever crossed over to where you were more concerned with your own life, then that would change. And it would change for anyone, right? Yeah. You, you, you don't have the ability to love somebody else unless you're thinking of their life over your own, right? It's, the world's kind of love is a fickle kind of love. That's why it's a kind of love that requires the other people to behave properly. <laughs> because really it's the kind of love that's born from what you can get from them you, yeah. you're loving your own life and now you're, you're going to be with somebody based on them being able to give you what you need for life and in the day they're in the place where they're not contributing to your life now they want to become collateral damage and we're just going to ax them off I don't say there's not situations in the earth where that happens and you can't deal with the pain and so people get divorced Right. But I'm talking about life from above and how God would think. Right. And the fickle kind of love that's born in the world. Right. We're good and we love them as long as we don't think they're in the way of what we need to have life. We're good and we love them as long as we think that they're contributing to what we think we need to have life. But the moment they find themselves on the other side, they're out. Right. Well, that just demonstrates that really we were loving ourselves. We weren't really loving them. You see, and we added them to our lives out of our great love for ourselves and what we thought they could give us, right? And that's how most marriages go down in the earth. And that's how most modern day Americanized marriages have gone down. You're looking around not for someone to share life with. You're not looking around for someone that you could pour yourself out for them. You're looking around for someone that can add to your life, right? And that's why it melts down so easily. The moment that they can't add anything because they're bankrupt or broken or even what they're doing becomes almost like a, a constant pressing in on you that they're in the way of you having life, right? And that's why they become collateral damage. Do you guys recognize that kind of dynamic? This is why most marriages in America end up in divorce. This is why most marriages in the church end up in divorce because people have never been taught about life from God and about their desire for life being satisfied in God. So they don't even realize it. They, it's not like they're calculating it, but they're out there looking for someone that can add to them. They're not out there looking for someone they can empty themselves for, right? And so the whole thing goes bankrupt. And it's really you loving yourself. And now let me find someone I can marry that will love me also, right? And really what we do is we try to surround ourselves with a bunch of people who are also loving us, right? Because after all, we love ourselves more than anyone. Yeah, right? You know, the scripture says it's better to give than receive. Yeah. Most of us probably grew up thinking, I gotta be, I gotta give, I gotta be more giving. Whereas the, the heart of the issue is if you have a life that is so complete 
that you don't need to receive anything and you just want to give, that's where it's at. That's right. It's a nice feeling. It's not like an eating. You're so content and full. Like if my, my cup is, I was thinking of this, my cup is full and Callie's half full. I have no problem filling her cup up. Then I was thinking, now wait a second, in the future, my cup's going to go down. Maybe I should save something myself. <laughs> yeah, that's that's carnal thinking, obviously. But if you have a cup that can never be emptied, that's the you know that's the idea. It's not like it's not that. I mean, every what do they say? Every analogy limps. Okay, and so, but the idea you're you have a life that can never be taken from, and to the extent you're persuaded of that, uh, you're you're happy. It's you effortlessly give. Other people, oh, he's such a giver. She's such a giver. Well, if they're in what I'm talking about, they don't even think about themselves being a giver. That's right. They just It's just something that flows out of them. And it's a nice feeling to not think that you lack and to think that you always have more than enough. That's the best feeling. That's why it's saying that. And also... Is there a better feeling? No. And the feeling of love coming pouring out of you is a fantastic experience. And I want to say it that way because we've been programmed to think it's something we must perform. It's a... It's a glorious, glorious thing when you feel what God feels when love comes pouring out of him towards somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's like the height of knowing and experiencing the love of God. Amen. It's not just a selfish kind of a thing. That might be your first part with God where you felt so much lack. You felt so unloved. You felt so rejected that you're being filled up with his love for you. And that's a glorious thing also. But I tell you what, when you find that love coming out of you because you feel your life is, is whole, and nothing can tarnish your life. And now what comes out of you towards others is born from that. Man, that's a, a glorious, glorious thing. And to put some theology to your point, Bobby, the first Corinthians 13 talking about love says, um, one of the translations says, love always believes the best about others. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so to your point about your mother or to your point about a family member, right, that you somehow your heart is not keeping a record of the wrongs they committed against them. If we kept cracking open the heart of the subconscious mind, what you'd get at the bottom is that you're believing the best about them, even though this is what's going on. Yeah. Right. But it's all every day, this offense. Yeah. Because if you're on a plane and the kid's next to you screaming, crying, yelling, <laughs> if that's your grandchild, a hell of a lot different than if that's the person over there's grandchild. Yeah, that's right. You're offended. Yeah. How's wrong? And why? And why is that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's love. It's love. You love the person. Right. But but we want people to understand what's going on. They they start getting caught up in these conversations with God. Right. So yeah, we can say it's just love. But then people are going off thinking, well, how come I don't love like that? Right. What's wrong with me? And they they don't engage in the the truth or this fellowship with God that's centered around the truth, right? So they don't find it necessarily born in them. They just find that there is a dynamic where that can happen. But why not me, right? And and just, I know we, we moved away from it now, but for people, I don't want to get past it. We will love each other, right? Like if we find someone to get married to, they will love us. So this isn't about, well, we're not going to have people around us that love us. But this is about the motivation in our heart. Right. And if we're busy trying to find relationships based on what people can do for us. Right. And, and what type of dynamic that is. It's a self-focused dynamic. Right. And really what the gospel comes to do is to set you free from being self-focused. 
It doesn't tell you to not be self-focused, but it comes and satisfies your every desire for life so much that you end up no longer thinking about what you need or what you don't have or how you really how you can get it. Right. Because you start to see how God gave it to you and you start connecting with what he's given to you and you start finding that satisfying your every desire. And you walk in this world finding your every desire satisfied in God. Right. You start walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit means that you're walking in the earth with God and his life lifted up in your sight. So you're always beholding everything you need for life in God. And in the day something comes along that isn't born from above, that isn't born for life, that you know is unjust, that you know isn't right because it's the fruit of death, what happens is, is that death doesn't get lifted up in your sight like the psalmist said. What happens is, is the Father is lifted up in your sight because you're walking in the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit leads you to the place where you cry out, Abba. The Spirit adopts you or immerses you into the Father and the life that's in the Father and how everything you desire for life is right there with you, present with you in the Father's loving embrace. And so in that moment, even when something is a contradiction to life, the Spirit shows you the Father. And the Spirit shows you everything you need is present with you in the Father and in the life that the Father has given you, right? And you start to feel accepted. You start to feel loved. You start to feel that you have everything. Just like the psalmist says, Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? I will fear no evil. There's evil there. The evil's not lifted up in my sight as if it can steal from me because the Spirit has led me to the place that I see the Father there with me and Him and His life is lifted up in my sight and I see everything I need in Him. I see that everything that evil is trying to tell me I'm separated from is actually right here with me in the Father's loving embrace, right? And then in that place, you find yourself still pouring your life out for other people, right? And it's very clarifying. The evil is still there. We haven't got to do a mind, you know, mind game. It's not really evil. It's something else, and this what? No, no, absolutely, the evil is still there. Yeah. But Christ is greater. That would be like New Age thing. Right. Death is a figment of our imagination. Christian science. It's not really there. Right. All things are good. All things are of life. No, they're not. All things are not of life. All things are not good. Jesus said so. So it's fine with me if you want to have your own opinion. But you'll do much better in life if you come to the place where you realize your opinion is worthless. <laughs> Everyone would come to a better place if they realized their opinion was worthless. And their one person opinion that matters, his name is Jesus. It's like, and, I, it's like, like I told my buddy at dinner the other night. The fact that you said that tells me God's going to be straightened out their thinking. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. And even back, even back to that, we've been lulled into a sleep from our traditions. It's, yeah. We've been so lulled to sleep by our traditions that we don't even possess the ability to think critically about the things we profess out of our mouth and are willing to die for. Like It doesn't take much of a rendering of Psalm 22 to come to the place where Jesus is clearly saying that the Father has always been with him. And he's always been in the Father, and the Father's always been in him. I mean, do we think that, I mean, does everybody realize Jesus was quoting a song? He wasn't just like making something up out of the clear blue sky. Do we think Jesus didn't know what the psalm said? Like, do we think when he said that, he didn't know what the psalm says? Well, you get like five or six verses in there, and Jesus is talking about how you, you knew me from, my, from the womb. And how you were always with me. 
And he starts talking about all of that right in the midst of the whole thing. The whole psalm is talking about a guy connecting with the fact that God's with him in the midst of all the suffering, trying to tell him God's far from him. Yeah. The whole psalm is about that. And so it doesn't take much to read that. And so it's like the height of ignorance that we've established that. It's like the height of arrogance that we've established that. And I, I keep going back to this because you never know who's going to listen to this video for the first time. We ought to know it's a big problem that we've established that as a doctrine when none of the apostles ever said that ever in any of their letters. Yeah. Not a single one. And this is another big problem in the church. You want to know why we have so many denominations? Because they haven't allowed their doctrines to be built on the backs of the apostles and the prophets. And I don't mean modern day. I mean like Paul and John and those dudes. And so the first thing we should say in the day we want to establish a denomination based on the fact that we need to set apart the Sabbath as a day. And we have to all come together Saturday, Friday from 6 to Saturday to 6. And if we don't do that, then we're sinning. Well, you should go read what the apostles said and see if they ever taught that anywhere. Guess what? They didn't. And so now we shouldn't teach that. Same thing with forsaken. We've built the whole Christianity around God, the Father forsook the Son. Well, we shouldn't just establish that because Calvin said it or Augustine said it, and we like those guys because maybe they were saints, right? What we ought to do is say, where did the apostles say that? And if they didn't establish that as a doctrine, then neither should we, right? And if people would start realizing that and start weighing what they want to teach up against the, the teaching of the apostles and the apostolic letters, we'd be saved from a lot of nonsense, right? It's like, no, Paul never said that. John never said it. Peter never said it. James never said it. The author of Hebrews never said it. They never said it. They never taught it. Why not? Right? Same thing with like the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But you know, a lot of people, it, it, it's so funny, in exalting the gifts of the Spirit as if they're the thing, we've actually alienated a whole bunch of people from connecting with the fact that they're there and that they can function in their life. Right. right? Because what we did is we made the gifts of the Spirit as if it was the main teaching in every single letter right. in the New Testament. And that's the seal of the deal. But you don't find any of them talking about it except for one letter, one time, one guy, Paul. But we made, there's, there's whole sections of Christianity, whole denominations of Christianity that have made that the pillar of everything. But you find it in one of the apostolic letters, which means it's there, it's real, we can talk about it, but we shouldn't make that the thing we're all desiring. We shouldn't make that the seal of the deal of whether we have life or not. And all of our gatherings being sitting around trying to work up the gifts of the Spirit, Right? But that's what we have, whole sections of Christianity on that. And it all boils down to, we, we have many masters instead of one, which is Jesus is the rabbi. And then understanding, like Paul said, that the church will be established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet teaching, meaning them. Because they are the ones who walked with Jesus. Right. Do, do you understand that? Jesus explained their doctrine to these guys, Right? When he walked the earth with them 40 days. And Paul, as one born out of time, right? Because he walked with Jesus later. After he encountered him on the road to Damascus. And Jesus taught him his doctrine. So Jesus taught those guys what all the things he was saying meant. He even said, y'all don't understand what I'm saying now. Right? But what will happen is, is after I ascend to the right hand of God, the Holy Spirit will come down and show you whatsoever things were revealed in me. 
And so then those guys elaborated in their letters about the doctrine that was in Christ that Christ was actually teaching, right? And so if we want to teach something about Jesus' doctrine that we can't find in their letters, that ought to give us cause for pause, where we just stop, right, and pray with the Lord and connect with God and be more like a Berean. And if we want to play with people's lives, we understand we don't practice our theology on people's lives. People's lives are more valuable than your theology, right? And then you start studying it out in the scriptures, right? And you see if it be so or not, right? Does everybody understand that? Does everybody see how that would that would eliminate a lot of the denominations if we defaulted back to that and we just said, wait a second, the Apostle Paul knows. The Apostle John knows. These guys know. Let me see if I see them teaching it. And if I don't, then I shouldn't be establishing it. But pe- many people want to be masters. Right? Yeah. Go ahead. And It's like uh, when you look at all the different denominations and every every denomination has their thing. This is the this is our perspective. Matter of fact, if you talk to somebody from a particular denomination, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. And I gotta tell you something. The day I say this is what we believe, slap me in the face. Because it it if I am telling people what we believe, I got a problem. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, I just, I shared that with you, but there was something, you know, as we were talking, I was thinking about what the atonement is, you know? And I said, let me look up the word atonement. So I looked up the word atonement. And would you believe that in the New Testament, I looked up atone, atoning, there is one verse, right? You're right. One verse in the whole New Testament that talk, says the atonement. And, and this is what it is. It says this. For if when we were enemies, that's enemies with God in our minds, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. And what's an, what's an interesting thing about that is, it says we received the atonement. And we have most religion out there telling us that we have to atone for our own sins and, and forgive other people as if, uh, they need the atonement that we can provide to them. Like it, it's man's work to do the forgiving. When what we just read here is that we have received the atonement. Yeah. And it, it came through to us through his blood, through his shedding his blood for us. Which means to be redeemed from death. To be re- That's right. Absolutely. Which is what Paul Saved says in our place. Life. And, and listen, if we understood any type of Jewish uh, background, there's a whole lot that's revealed in that one verse. He uses the word joy, right? There's a reason why he uses the word joy. That ain't just some like random thing where we think, oh, I feel joyful because that's a nice birthday cake, right? In the history of Israel, they were all looking for restoration. 
That's what they believed yes. the atonement was. They had the day of atonement, which was the day of judgment, which they believed would be the rest, restoration of all things, meaning that they would be exalted and restored unto life and that the kingdom of God would be born in the earth. And so that's what their idea of atonement was, restoration from death to life, restoration from being in the miry clay to being exalted. And so that's what's being talked about there. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about we're filled with joy now, knowing we've been restored from death to life by his blood, right? Though sin was reigning over us, though our sin was as red as crimson, causing death to reign over us, he has come and made it as white as snow by taking our death into his own body and then shedding that death and leaving it in the grave and then coming out of that grave in a life that can even save from death. That's the restoration of all things. Right, and, and then once you find yourself reconciled to God, and you know that you are reconciled to God, and you have that life, all of a sudden you look at all of life and all all of your relationships differently. You look at everything differently. At everything different. And reconciled to God again, guys. There's a reference point for these words. We don't get to decide what they mean anyway. There's a whole Bible that's talking about reconciled to God is talking about how because of the sin of one man, Adam, none of us could eat from the tree of life. None of us could partake of life. And so reconciled to God means the tree of life has now been made freely available to everyone, meaning you can freely partake of life now. That's what it means. It's not talking about some angry deity, right, that was stiff arming you like the Heisman pose. And now he's not stiff arming you anymore. What it's talking about is we were married to death and God couldn't grant eternal life to death. So we didn't have access to the tree of life. So God, like a master surgeon, comes and divorces us from our union to death so that we are free to be married to him in his life. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. And honestly, if more people started thinking reconciliation to God meant that you're reconciled to his life, an incorruptible life, a life that can't be added to or stolen from, a life that feels all things, that has all things, that supplies all things, that makes all things straight, that saturates all things. If that's what we thought about reconciliation in our whole Christian life, that's what we thought reconciliation was, we'd be a blessed people right now because we'd be in the place where we didn't think this world could add or take away from us instead of grappling with it now. Right? Yeah. But no, we made reconciliation about God being angry and not being angry anymore. So we haven't spent our whole Christian lives thinking about, that means we possess an incorruptible life. That means the Father in his life and everything we need for life is right here. Mm. We have it all the time. And if we came together all the time talking about that, and that's what our whole Christian life was centered on, we'd all be a much happier people right now. Right? And we wouldn't be wrestling so much with what goes on around us in the world. We wouldn't be so confused about it. Same thing with the forgiveness of sin. If we actually taught that the forgiveness of sin was God sending the sins people commit against us away from us, instead of being taught that it's about God being angry, and now he found a way to deliver himself from anger, if we had been taught that the right way, every time we come to church and thought about the forgiveness of sin, we would think about how God destroyed our fellowship with death and corruption. We would think about how God refused to allow the sins people committed against us to be attached to our life. We'd be thinking about how God divorced us from the kind of life that needs people to, to accept it and to do the right thing in order to have life. And we'd all the time be thinking about that. And we wouldn't be trying to tell people, you must forgive so your life's not destroyed. But we've taught all these things in a corrupt way. An angry deity and a no longer angry deity. Instead of life and death. Instead of all the time being filled with what God's done to separate us from what can steal life from us. And what God's done to give us of himself a life that can't be stolen from. And how that life is always present with us. Instead of all the time talking about that, we're talking about all this nonsense. We say we must forgive. And then we describe the forgiveness of God as if he needed payment to forgive. 
That's retribution. That's not forgiveness. And so we've actually taught, because the scripture says that there's no forgiveness. There's no remission of sin without blood. And that's a true statement. But what we've talked about is God couldn't stop being angry with us unless he got his anger out on Jesus. And then we, that's our whole view of forgiveness. And then we wonder why we struggle to let people off the hook. We also want to exact a pound of flesh. And we want to hold it over their head. And we want to make sure they're sorrowful and remorseful about what they did. We didn't just get that on our own. We were taught that about God. Whatever you believe about God will be born in you. Yes. And so that's not forgiveness. What we've described about God. That's payment. Mm -hmm. And so we've also had that same system born in us. We want payment. Right? Instead of saying, wait a second, forgiveness never had anything to do with being angry. Yeah, but yeah, blood was needed because how could we be divorced from death unless there was a death? How could we be set free from our union to death unless there was a death? How could we be cleansed from death unless blood ran out of the Adam man, the old man? And so you start seeing that blood was needed, but it had nothing to do with God being angry. It had to do with him desiring to send death away from us. And how could he send death away from us unless blood, unless there was a death? Unless we could die to our union to Adam. Right? And you start realizing you're dead to the life that can be harmed. That's what you're supposed to think about every time you think about, behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You're supposed to think about how you've put off the life that can be stolen from. You've put off the life that needs people to accept you. You've put off the life that needs people to behave properly towards you, to have what you need. You're divorced from that. And if that's what we've been talking about all these years... It would have been born in us effortlessly because that's how the gospel works. It shapes the belief in your heart about God, about you, about your life with God, about what it means to be as you ought to be. You start to, to understand and dwell in wisdom, right? But we've made everything in the gospel about everything that it has nothing to do with. And it's left us impotent in the experiential knowing of the life of God, right? And so that's why. I mean, the forgiveness of sin is not just about God forbidding your sin from coming upon you. It's about what God did to forbid other people's sins from coming upon you. <laughs> and what he does through that whole forgiveness of sin is he starts teaching you about the life that the old man had and how the old man's dead now and you're dead to your union to the old man. And he starts teaching you about what he's done to clothe you in the new man. Yeah, you, you can say he sent all of the death away, not some of it. That's right. That's right. We only think about the forgiveness of sin from the perspective of God not imputing our transgressions to us. No, it's about God protecting your life from other people's transgressions against you. Because the forgiveness of sin is about God destroying your fellowship with destruction. It's about God establishing a nursery rhyme in your life. I'm rubber and you're glue. <laughs> Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks on to you. And so the forgiveness of sin is about God getting it right to where the transgressions people commit against you can't stick to your life. They can't attach themselves to your life. He come and raised up a man that the trespasses that were committed against him couldn't steal from him, couldn't keep him from life. That's the new man. That's He come to clothe us in that man 
So that when people commit transgressions against us, we don't see ourselves as one with what they've done. We don't see our life as one with what they've done. We don't see ourselves as having the kind of life that's at the mercy of what they've done. Right? We don't see that our life is lacking because of what they've done. Because we've been clothed in the life of this new man who we see his life can't be stolen from because we see all the trespasses that came against this guy's life and then we see that dude stand up out of the grave. Oh, none of those trespasses could attach themselves to him. They were sent away from him, right? And he was know, raised up separated from them. You know, yeah. for, for, and for us, forgiveness is really not something you do. It's something that you possess. We have received the atonement. Yeah. So we, when you possess that life where everything has been made right, all of a sudden, it can't stick to you anymore. If everything has been made right, what can that person do to me that's going to impinge upon this perfect life he's given? That's right. So when you have that life and someone does something offensively toward you, so what? So your natural response to that person will be not holding anything against That's them. right. And it's because what he did to me does not attach itself to me. That's right. In my heart, in my mind, it's not attached to me. So the way I respond back to that person. You don't attach it to them. You don't attach it. That's, you, you, That's right. You're exactly right. The inner working of the heart is it keeps a record of wrongs when it thinks the wrongs could steal from it. Yeah. If the heart doesn't believe the wrongs can steal, then the heart does not keep a record. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? We only keep a record if we think what they've done has stolen from us. But it's like, can what they've done remove the Father? Can what they've done take the Father from you? Can what they've done take the life the Father has in himself? Can what they've done steal from the Father? Right? And so what will happen is, man, the Holy Spirit will paint this beautiful image of the Father. And you'll see everything you need for life in the Father. And you'll see that everything you ever needed for life was always present with you in the Father. And you're like the, the elder son that you thought you didn't have. I, I, I did all these things. You never gave me, not even one lamb, so that I could have a party with my friends. Look at what you kept for me. Look at what I didn't have. Look at what I needed. And then what does the Father come and say? Everything I had has always been yours. You start to realize there's never been a time in your life where you didn't have present with you everything you needed to experience life. Because no matter where you were and no matter what was going on, the Father was always there present with you and everything you ever needed, no matter what people said or did, was always present in his loving embrace. And the only problem you had is you grew up in a world that made you blind to his presence. You grew up in a world that helped you to not see him there. You grew up in a world that taught you, you need all these things from this person, from that person, from these situations. And so it blinded you to the Father there and everything you needed in him. And the gospel comes to pop open your eyes. So you begin to see that, right? And you begin to see you had everything you need. And then you start to see, well, the only reason why these people even acted that way is because they were afflicted by the world. And they didn't think they had everything they needed. And they were busy trying to produce life themselves. And that's why they were doing what they were doing. Right? And what could I have gained from them anyway? That I can't gain from the Father. Right? Right? Yeah. 
This doesn't mean you, you can, you, sometimes you'll be indifferent. But this doesn't mean we're indifferent to hurt. This, this, this isn't about how you get to the place where nothing ever stings. It's that the sting isn't able to plant itself in your heart. The sting isn't able to shape your thoughts about yourself, your life, and other people, right? You feel the sting, and you start recognizing the sting is death. The sting is not these people. And because you see the sting is death, you see the answer is the life the Father has in himself. And so now you connect with him. That keeps the judgments out of your heart. It keeps your life from being shaped by lies and trauma. It's like getting stung by a bee, but you don't have an allergic reaction. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but that's the only way reconciliation between men can take place. Oh, yeah, it's got to be here first. That's right. It, it's here first, but when that is inside of you, all of a sudden you can begin to reason with another person and understand the other person. So reconciliation and relationship between people that's can right. actually exist. That's and right. even if we can never understand the other person, we're still complete in the living Christ. Yeah, that's yeah. right. When you will understand that, when you find wholeness, you will understand. Sure. Because you'll see. Yeah. Right. It's like no, no, no. Don't offer a sacrifice. Go and make it right with your brother first. Right. You don't need to get right with God. Right. You recognize God and higher straight. God provided yeah. sacrifice. That sets you free to now go get with your brother. Right. You're not busy thinking about what you need to offer God. You see what God's offered you. Right. And now that causes you to prefer your brother over yourself. Yes. Right. Because your life is square. Square. Glory Going to God. back to the beginning of what you said about getting caught up with God in the moment. The scripture says, uh, and the peace of God will guard your heart. Well, the purpose of a guard is not to act on something happening. The purpose of a guard is to keep something from happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Glory to God. Protection. Amen. Y'all are awesome. Thanks so much.